Good morning. It is Monday, November 30th. You're listening to the College Football Daily. My name is Trey Scott. We are back. I'm joined by Chris Hummer, National College Football Writer for 24-7 Sports. It's been a few days since we talked to you, Chris. We uh, Last time we spoke on the podcast, it was dissecting the playoff rankings. And in the days that have passed, we've had Thanksgiving. We've had several days of college football. We've had a few, or, or one in particular, a coach firing. So I know we were both on the road on, on Sunday, and we're glad to be home. Um, how are you doing, and are you struggling to sort of remember everything that's happened in the last few days? <laughs> I'm struggling to remember a lot. I think I'm in a food coma still. But, uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a really busy couple of days in college football, starting with a couple games on Thursday night, some great games Friday, obviously some great games um, on Saturday as well. But I think what's really interesting is the day on Sunday kind of getting started with Derek Mason, as you said. It's not really surprising to see Vanderbilt part with Derek Mason. He's 0-8 uh, right now. Derek Mason entered the season on the hot seat. Vanderbilt, even though it had a couple of nice moments early on with some freshmen, kind of pushed AM early, has been in some games, has not shown enough improvement for that administration. Uh, Derek Mason's buyout is not huge from what I understand. So that's not surprising. And it is a little surprising to see it happen during the season. And I think it's a pretty good indication that if you're a school that has to move, like you have to give yourself a little wiggle room ahead of both the early signing period and kind of the end of the year. So if we see other moves happen, I would not be shocked to see more happen during the middle of the season. We can talk more about the Vanderbilt job if you want, but I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts on that job are in general as a Nashville resident. Yeah, absolutely. It's hard to believe he's already been there six years now, 27 and 55 at Vanderbilt. That's a hard place to win. Horrible facilities. No real academic leadership buy-in there with anything but the baseball program. Uh, It's a great city, though. And I I think if someone has this vision, like if someone believes that this can be a, a place where you can win big, then I think they can succeed. If someone comes in and... Like I, I never, I never was inspired really by Derek Mason. There was never sort of this sense of, of like Vanderbilt Nashville takeover that I imagine happened when James Franklin was making a name for himself here. I think I think someone who comes in has to has to be able to market and brand the university and the football program. I think they absolutely need to push for some sort of facility overhauls. Uh, the, the stadium is just it's it's all bad. Um, and then and then I think you need to be able to recruit. And you need to be able to, um, you know, coach capably on game day. It's, I, I, I feel like the hot name is is Notre Dame defensive coordinator Clark Lee, who went to Vanderbilt uh, from Nashville. Vanderbilt. Yeah. I think a concern there would be the fact that Notre Dame just had a defensive coach, and they need to maybe sell some tickets in the next few years. Or that, yeah, yeah. That thank you. Uh, that that Vanderbilt, you know, just had a defensive coach, and they need to sell some tickets. The thing is, though, like I can see Clark Lee doing at Vanderbilt what Jeff Halfley is doing up there in Boston College. I think you need someone pretty young, someone who's ready to market for the program and who can recruit well. It's it's not going to be the biggest job out there, but it is it is an SEC gig after all. So there should be a little bit of interest if people can get over the fact that uh, Vanderbilt is a brutal place to win at historically. I think in the future, it might not be as difficult. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting. Derek Mason, who followed a very successful regime for James Franklin, has been kind of thought as this failure at um, Vanderbilt. He hasn't, he hasn't had a winning season since he got there. But if you look at their recent history, so I'm talking about 1960 on, 
Derek Mason's two six-win seasons are actually, I think, the sixth and the seventh best campaigns for Vanderbilt in that stretch. So that shows you how difficult of a job that is. Derek Mason with two sub-500 seasons was still one of the more successful coaches in recent Vanderbilt history, which kind of helps explain the runway he got. Um, So there are certainly challenges with this job, as you said. But I think a guy like Clark Lee, and I think Jeff Hathaway is an excellent comparison. I think Clark Lee really fits the profile of Vanderbilt as an academic institution. If you talk to him, you're blown away by Clark Lee one-on-one. He's a really smart guy. I think if you can bring some energy and enthusiasm to that job, kind of pitch Nashville as this hub, this like centerpiece of a kind of a growing part of the SEC, like there's a chance to be really successful. I'm sure a guy like Brent Pry will be mentioned, Penn State's defensive coordinator who has worked under James Franklin in his time at Vanderbilt. I think I've seen, this isn't me reporting this, but Jeff Fisher's name's been thrown around out there. I think a guy like, yeah, former Tennessee Titans head coach, Jamie Chadwell, um, at Coastal Carolina, I think we'll certainly bear mention here, and I would not be surprised um, if he would be interested in this job. And I think a guy like Will Healy could certainly do a good job as well, although he's kind of struggled in Charlotte. But he's he had a lot of success at Austin P, which is near the Nashville area, really brought some energy to that program. So I, no matter what, this I think Jeff Fisher's kind of a different name there. But I think Vanderbilt really needs to go young. They really need to bring a guy that can bring some energy to the program, some life into a city with plenty of it, and then kind of recruit to that environment. Yeah, you could talk me to into any of those names other than Jeff Fisher. I think expanding the conversation, <laughs> does, it does seem like the carousel's um, spinning into action. South Carolina's been open for a few weeks now. There's talk there that it really could be Shane Beamer's job. I'll probably explore that conversation later this week, hopefully with Brad Crawford. Um, I don't know if Michigan is going to do anything head coach wise. We've talked about that too, Chris. It does seem like Don Brown's days might be numbered at defensive coordinator. But then, of course, the big story of the week in the coaching carousel down in Austin, Texas, lost to Iowa State by three at the very end of the game. Tom Herman, his seat was already hot. He probably needed to win out to save his job, and he didn't. And now it's uh, there's there's going to be some opt outs. There's going to be there's going to be a few weeks of pain in Austin for a coach who has a $15 million, million buyout and that will be uh, worth uh, money well spent if if Texas boosters have a verbal commitment from Urban Meyer. No word on that front, but it does seem like at least the, the, the Tom Herman getting fired part of that equation is trending toward very likely. Yeah, it's interesting. Tom Herman's like most likely going to finish this season at seven and three Kansas state's really struggling right now. And Kansas is Kansas, which is very okay, but it's just not what Tom Herman needs. And if you watch the end of that Iowa state game, I realized it was a ranked loss. I realized Iowa state's really good, but kind of the way that game happened at the end of it is just kind of the embodiment of a lot of the problems Tom Herman's had during his regime. Um, Tom Herman's an interesting guy. I think he's got some support still among Texas boosters, but he's not, he's never really been a guy that's like uh a Mac Brown who's warmed himself up and cozied himself up to those guys. Um, the Oklahoma loss had the hounds out um, in early October. Um, Chris Del Conte was bombarded with text emails and calls. Asking, the Texas AD. Yeah. Asking for Tom Herman to be fired. The eyes of Texas controversy, which I know you've talked to uh, talked about on this podcast before was happening at that time. And all of that kind of swirled, but kind of a common denominator in a lot of those um, calls, um, per some sources and per some open records I've pulled was the name Urban Meyer, as you said. Texas boosters want Urban Meyer. Texas fans want Urban Meyer. 
I don't know if Urban would be willing to take that job. I get the feeling that Urban Meyer is eventually going to get back into coaching. And if he was going to, it would be a job like Texas. It's going to take an obscene amount of money. We're talking nine, $10 million a year to kind of lure Urban to Austin. But I think Texas's boosters would be willing to pay that. So it'll be, it'll be really compelling if Tom Herman ultimately is fired. And as you said, I, I think it's more likely than not at this point. And Urban Meyer would be the first and probably only name on a lot of Texas fans. Mind. The College Football Daily will be right back. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be an interesting few weeks in Austin. Big buyout, and then the the staff buyout for Tom Herman would be twenty five. And you hit it on the on the uh, the nail on the head. I think the Urban Meyer salary would probably be ten. Um, so a lot of money, but it would it would probably be worth it. So. I have two more topics, Chris, that I want to talk to you about from fresh from college football overtime, which is the article you do every Saturday night. The big 10 is sort of in a playoff bind right now, potentially. Um, Ohio state had to cancel its game this weekend against Illinois because of a coronavirus outbreak. We'll see if they can play against Michigan state. If they can't, Big Ten rules dictate that a team must play six games in order to qualify for the conference championship game. And if Ohio State does miss the Michigan State game, they would be disqualified from the Big Ten title game. That doesn't mean they couldn't play the weekend of December 19th. The Big Ten has this setup where it's one versus one in Indianapolis and then two versus two. So that would be Ohio State versus Wisconsin, which actually would be a um, a nice win for the playoff resume. But we're, we're cl- it would be surprising if Ohio State plays next weekend and then the next weekend against Michigan and then gets to play again on the 19th. That, that There's an outbreak here. The Big Ten rules stipulate that a player who has COVID-19 must sit out for 21 days. That's three weeks. So this is going to be tough. And you were writing in your in your uh, college football overtime the fact that like Indiana versus Northwestern will be for the Big Ten title game. And if that does happen... What does that mean for Ohio State's playoff chances, whether they have you know, six wins or, or five? Yeah, I, I think it's it's a really compelling scenario. I, I think it's it's a bit of a tenuous situation over there. I talked to somebody this morning. They, they're just not sure if they're going to be able to go. I think if you're looking for a sense of optimism for Ohio State, it's that athletic director Gene Smith did say on Saturday that the Buckeyes could have played if they had to. They met the minimum threshold to play. They just The university and the athletic department didn't dictate that it was safe and healthy for the guys to do so. Um, I think if push comes to shove, there's a chance Ohio State pushes forward next week against Michigan State if it's able to go. But these things are kind of touch and go when you're dealing with an outbreak and nothing's certain in that regard. But in terms of the actual standings itself, as you said, there's a six-game rule that you have to play to play in the Big Ten Championship game. If Ohio State loses one of its next two, and I mean lose as in taking off the board, they're out. Um, There is a small chance that if, Every Big Ten game gets canceled from now till then. The conference's average kind of total for the season would drop below six, but that's very unlikely. So as you said... Yeah, but if all this happens, like the the, the doomsday things that we're laying out... Oh yeah, the playoff. I'm sorry. Yeah, a five in Ohio yeah. State. I It's a really compelling scenario. I can't tell you what the committee's going to do. The, Ohio, the committee thought Ohio's... What would you do? What would you do? Is that enough? No, I, I don't think so. I... Okay, I don't think either. there's any doubt Ohio State's one of the four. Actually, I actually I take that back. I do think there's some doubt. Ohio State hasn't. Yeah, be yeah, careful. Ohio here. State. We know they're. We, we think they're one of the four best. Thanks. Right? A, thanks a good but word. But I just don't know if you can do it. Yeah, and 
Like I just don't know if you can put a five or six win team in the playoff when you've got other people out there playing 10. I agree. And I, I tend to lean that direction as well. Ohio State's best win of the season is over Indiana. They almost blew that game at the end. And I think if you dropped Indiana in the SEC right now, Indiana would be at best the sixth or seventh team in the league. I'm not being an SEC biased person here or anything like that. No, yeah, it's, the, yeah. it's the reality of the situation. Indiana is a good team. It's not a great one. Penn State was closer than I think a lot of people remember. Um, that Penn State team, I believe, is one in five now. That is not a win to hang your hat on. Nebraska's not very good. Rutgers is not very good. So we haven't seen Ohio State beat anybody good yet. And that opportunity is not really on the schedule, even if they get to the Big Ten title game and get to play, I guess, Northwestern, most likely. So that's a problem. And I guess I guess the question is, I guess, Trey, would you take a 9-1 and Texas A&M or a 11-0 and Cincinnati over a 5-0 and Ohio State? All right. I would rather watch the five and O Ohio state in the playoff, but at that point I would probably have to take nine and one Texas A&M. I tend to agree, but I would say, even though they didn't look good against LSU, they didn't I look thought good the defense all, looked really but, good, but the Kellen Mond looked like yeah. the same quarterback who really struggled. Last yeah. Year. But I, I don't know. It's going to be tough. It's like, I want to see selfishly. I want to see Justin Fields same. in the playoff. I want to see that happen again. I think this team has looked a little shaky the last few weeks. It's and it's also not their fault that the Big Ten has put themselves in this corner. I think Ohio State would make for a great playoff television. No question. But at the same time, and I know this is twenty twenty, all rules are out the window, and maybe it is a year to give Cincinnati finally a chance. I just Chris, I just I I just don't see five and zero being enough. So I, the one caveat I want to point out there, and I think we're on the same page there. I agree that 5-0 and is not enough football, really, to kind of prove yourself as a playoff-worthy team. We're dismissive of USC for the same reason out West. And I think we just think Ohio State's better, which is fine, but you kind of have to prove it. The thing is, the committee doesn't have to look at resumes. They don't have to look at anything but best team. At the end of the day, when they have distinctions like conference championships, games played, and data points... Those are only when you're comparing teams that they view kind of similarly. If they view Ohio State at 5-0 and as a much better team than Texas A&M, the committee has full leeway to put Ohio State into the playoff over Texas A&M, for example. I don't know if they'll go that far. I certainly wouldn't, but the committee has kind of the ability to do so, and I wouldn't be shocked if there's a very serious debate about that in the room that came down to it. So the, the one conference we're not talking about as we segue into our last topic today on the on the recap episode the pac-12 is nationally pretty much already irrelevant usc didn't play this week but oregon did they lost 41 to 38 to rival oregon state on friday i actually like watch watching oregon state play they're well coached they can run the ball it watching the game didn't really feel like a huge upset um even though it was like something like a, a 14 point spread but oregon's out of it washington came back and took out utah late saturday night but as you wrote it just with Oregon losing, it just doesn't really matter right now. And it probably didn't either. And I, I think one of my theories this season is Oregon has looked so unimpressive because they knew there really was no chance for them to make the playoff. But this is symptomatic of a larger thing that the Pac-12 has had the last few years. Their teams aren't very good comparatively. They're not making much money comparatively. And no one really cares comparatively it's probably going to cost larry scott his job when all all is said and done in the next few months and i'm rooting for the pac-12 chris to eventually uphold its into the bargain of being a power five conference yeah college football is better when the west coast matters like college football is better when usc is exciting 
college football is better when UCLA matters in LA and kind of makes that L- that LA versus LA rivalry a thing. College football is better when Phil Knight's money is just raining down in Oregon and Oregon's good. College football is better when Washington's good. College football is better than when Utah's good. I'll get the point. Like college football is better for it, but it just it hasn't been the case recently. Like in every area, the Pac-12 is falling short right now. The Conference of Champions hasn't won a national title since USC in 2004. The Pac-12's revenue is $32.2 million a year. That's actually ahead of the ACC, but that's going to change very soon with the ACC's kind of television contract with ESPN. But for some context on that kind of $32.2 million, the Big Ten brought in $23.4 million more than the Pac-12 did um, in 2019. And that's that's a huge, huge difference. Like if you think about it over a five-year period, that's more than $100 million. That's the difference between Colorado being able to play Mel Tucker, $3.2 million a year, and Michigan State coming in and poaching a mid-tier Pac-12 head coach to be their head coach for 4.5. You can just do things differently when you have that additional revenue coming in. And the Pac-12 schools are suffering for it. Recruiting's an issue out West. I think USC, fresh off the number 64 Overall recruiting class in the country is still the Pac-12's uh, highest rated team in the 24-7 sports team talent composite. And in our history of the 24-7 sports team talent composite, you have to be a top 10 team to win a national championship. The Pac-12 is on the outside looking in in that category for the most part as well. They've had embarrassing officiating issues that have cost teams games. They have campuses that really don't take college, college football that seriously, if I'm being honest, and athletics in general with cuts all over the board. And Larry Scott, as you mentioned earlier, gets paid more than every other Power 5 commissioner to kind of oversee what is a honestly is a mess. So all of this kind of combined is just, is just kind of the overall arc of the Pac-12 right now. Oregon losing on Saturday night was merely a symptom of a much larger problem. And I think, I think people talk about conferences as kind of cyclical, like the, Pac-12 will eventually come back because the Pac-12 is great. The Pac-12 has great teams. But I really think the conference needs a jolt in a different direction to kind of make this work. And that starts with the failing television network, the programs, the recruiting, and everything else. It's just the conference is really struggling right now. Yeah, no playoff team since 2016. Washington, we say that stat every year. And every year we say it, you know, it's, it's one year further along. Um, and that Washington team got what, yeah, destroyed. They weren't competitive. They weren't competitive. So... All right, Chris Hummer, good stuff from you per usual. Going to be a fun week on the college football beat as we jump back into the saddle, get ready for a few more weeks of the season, and we get ready for National Signing Day, the early signing period on December 16th. So appreciate you joining us. Our producer, Michael Mormile, thanks for putting this together. My name is Trey Scott. We will talk to everybody on Tuesday for the next edition of the College Football Daily.